Welcome back to the Pogue McGold podcast. James Carew, co-editor of Pogue McGoal website and magazine. And if you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we're launching on this brand new medium to coincide with the release of the very latest issue of the magazine, Issue 6. Pogue McGoal is a website and magazine from Ireland, which looks at football culture, opinion, design and feature writing from both our homeland and around the world. Our brand new issue, Issue 6, is now available to order from pogmagoal.bigcartel.com or check us out on social media at Pogue McGoal. It's over 60 pages focused on considered design and quality writing from writers, illustrators, graphic designers and photographers across the globe. On today's episode, we're going to take a deeper look at another feature article from issue 6 of the Pogue McGoal magazine with the author of the piece. And to help, I'm joined once more by my co-host Joe Phelan. Joe is a news editor based in London who in the past has worked for sports websites and managed social media profiles for some Premier League footballers. He also once had Ian Wright cooking a pizza at his home. Welcome back to Pogue Goal, Joe. Hey, thanks very much. That is my favourite Ian Wright story. <laughs> I love that. And before we introduce our guest, Joe, you've been exploring the more unusual side of the football world and you recently wrote an article which is up on our website on some of the oldest players to play professional football, including a somewhat forgotten Irish legend. Yeah, I I wrote this, well, partly because I saw um, a story a few weeks ago about a guy called Azeldin Bahadar from Egypt who's made... uh, made history by playing a professional game at the age of seven, was it 74 or 76? Yeah, it was 74. Uh, and I just thought that was absolutely incredible. And then I got to thinking, like, football websites often talk about the next big thing. They want to talk about the youngsters that are coming through, but we never really talk about the old people. So I thought I'd uh, delve into that a little bit. Ended up talking about Bill Lacey, the oldest player to represent Ireland, um, who I think he played at the age of 41, I think, in the 30s. And then uh, Sam El Hadri, who is an Egyptian goalkeeper, who's the oldest person ever to go in the World Cup. And uh, King Kazoo, who I'm sure a lot of footballers, oh, f- football fans will be very aware, especially football hipsters will know about him. He's been playing for 35 years in a row now and he's still turning out in the top tier in the Japanese, the Japanese Super League or the J League, I think it's called. Um, yeah, so old people still doing it. Fair play to them. So basically, Joe, you're saying there's still hope for myself. I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm saying, I'm saying you've very much missed the boat, but, uh, <laughs> but others didn't. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> so that article is up on the website on pogmagold.com. But today's guest is Ollie Woodbridge, a content producer in London who has worked for a number of broadcasters in the UK, including Eurosport and Talksport Radio. 
He's an Arsenal fan, but for issue six, he's penned an intriguing article entitled The Three Knees of Nedved, the story of a billion-to-one anatomic anomaly which added to Pavel Nedved's legendary makeup and made him a standout performer for Juventus and the Czech national team. Welcome to Pogue McGoal, Ollie. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Great to be here. Great to have you. So, as we did in previous episodes, Ollie, I want to ask you first, how were you first introduced to football or do you have any abiding memories? I've got many, many abiding memories. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess to date myself, you know, I was born in the late 80s, so uh, I'm 32. And uh, I'm, I was actually brought up in a household that didn't care about football at all. Um, my dad really wasn't interested. He was more of a rugby guy. But I had an older cousin um, who was obsessed with Arsenal, um, which I... so. My first memories really of football were around him and, and around that time. And I guess I was six, seven, eight years old. Um, but really for me, it was, as I'm sure it was maybe for, for, for many men of my age, uh, boys and girls, it was Euro 96, which was obviously based in England. And that, those are my first concrete, vivid memories of suddenly being, um, you know, exposed to this, you know, just the incredible game. And it was right on our doorstep. You know, it was Skinner and Bedeal, um with their song with the lightning seeds. Uh, you know, football was coming home. And it was, um, yeah, so it was around that time. That's, those are my sort of earliest memories, if you like. I, I always find it interesting that, that um, people seem to fall in love with football during big tournaments rather than, and then, and then they seem to pick their, their club side later. I, I don't know what it is. Like maybe it's because it's, it's, it's the furore around it. It sort of comes out of nowhere. It's like a massive festival and you go, right, everyone in the country loves this, so you have to join in. So a bit like the Olympics. No, no one cares about decathlon <laughs> until summer. Yeah, they do. Every four years. And you're right, Euro 96 was that. It was this explosion. It was a carnival, essentially. And if you're a six-year-old, eight-year-old kid like I was, and I did love football before that, I'd found Arsenal through my cousin, and I remember we played Palmer, and I have these early memories of these sort of, you know, games on TV that would come, come, come along. But I think it was also the fact that in this tournament, you had some incredible players who later, they then, you know, moved into the Premier League and then suddenly we saw them every day. But I think you're absolutely right. I think you're right. And so it was after that where it was suddenly like, oh yeah, I'm, a, I'm an Arsenal fan. And, and that was the beginning of it, really. Those tournaments are, are so special though. They are abiding memories from your youth because you've got games every day. You come home from school, there's a game on, there's another two games on in the evening. Maybe your own country is involved in it. Who doesn't love these festivals of football? I know the club, the international game nowadays gets a, a bad rep and it's uh, allegedly being replaced by the Premier League and the Champions League. but And people say, oh, uh, why we've got another international window coming up. I love the international windows. Uh, the, the football can be terrible, but coming from Ireland, the Irish national team is like our club team, and we only get to see them in the international window. So I'm all for magical tournaments in the summer. I was going to say on top of that, like with Ollie um, getting really into England in, in 96, James, you're... Your entrance must have been fairly similar in 94 because Ireland just took over the footballing world then. I'm even older than that, Joe. I remember Euro 88. Uh, I was only about seven, but I remember watching the games and the goals. Wow. And then, of course, 1990 was Ireland's first World Cup, which was like a magical summer, which 30-odd years later we're still talking about. And, of course, this year, sadly, we lost the great Jack Charlton. <laughs> Fantastic goal from Pavel Nedvěd. 
Medved. My name is Nedved, but it can also be pronounced as Medved, which means bear in Czech. The Czech Republic have a lot of exciting young players coming through. But he got a shot himself. It's in! Splendid effort by the European Footballer of the Year, Pavel Nedved. Funny you should talk about Euro 96, Oli, because it's very much a star, a breakout star of that tournament, who was the inspiration for your piece, Pavel Nedved. So what a player he was, but your piece is... Uh, intriguing because it delves into a certain aspect of his physical makeup but to start off you set the scene by talking about Zinedine Zidane was this icon of Juventus team and he was leaving to join the great Galacticus project in Madrid. Well I think it's important uh, to to have laid the foundation by telling you about Euro 96 because Nedved was one of those players um, and actually, what I remember from watching one of the one of the spurious group games, I think it was the Czech Republic versus Italy, and I remember vividly the commentary saying that the Italian team would know Nedved because Nedved plays in Italy. And I remember that that being really foreign to me. I was like, hold on a minute. Obviously, being only eight years old, I was like, surely everyone plays in their own country. No players would sort of move around. So that was kind of new to me. It was again Gascoigne, an England icon. Um, and, but he played his domestic football in Scotland and now he was playing against Scotland, against players he was obviously very familiar with. That, I remember being a running theme. Anyway, so Nedved sticks in the mind, Czech Republic get to the final, they lose to Germany and he was incredible and he was really young in that tournament but he stuck in mind, he, was, he wasn't a player that came over to the Premier League but at that time, I don't know if you remember but Serie A was, was huge, like he was arguably the biggest league in, the, um, in Europe um, and the Premier League was still some way behind and he was... Uh, yeah, he was amazing. And so anyway, so I learned that he played for the Lazio team at the time. I'll be honest with you, Nedved went on to have, you know, an illustrious career, but he didn't come to mind for me um, until maybe a few years ago, thinking about this article, thinking about this story, which I'd known for a while, um, when I realised that he won the Ballon d'Or. I remember that he'd won the Ballon d'Or, and that's what made Nedved so significant, because of how coveted that award was. He is, was the best player in the world in a year when Thierry Henry had scored 25 goals and 20 assists, like for Arsenal in the Premier League. You know, Nedved pipped him to the post. That's how good this guy was. Um, so really setting the scene was just to say that Zidane was a, was a huge icon. He made this huge, huge move to Madrid. And that actually was the linchpin to tell the story. But he was such an icon and that was such a hole that he left behind at Juve. And they decided to spend almost to a penny the Zidane fee and they spent it on Nedved. But it's also the story and the circumstance, how he joined Juve and how he dominated Italy for eight years in the Serie A. We would watch it on Terrestrial on Channel 4 every weekend uh, because it was on TV. So you get to see this guy and he was dominant. Joel, do you remember watching Nedved? I think I remember watching players of Nedved's ilk and probably even Nedved as well because growing up in that era... I was going to mention this earlier about finding love for those early tournaments. It's because you'd see countries and you'd see players that you had zero idea about. Like, there, there could be a player who would just play in Euro 96 who was similar quality to Mbappe, but you'd never heard of before. You had, didn't have YouTube clips, you didn't have podcasts, you didn't have Sky showing a thousand games a day. So players like that could just jump on the scene out of nowhere. And um, I remember 
watching Gazetta Football Italia on Sunday mornings on Channel 4. And I used to watch that all the time. And Nedved was clearly one of the stars of that. Um, and, and I don't remember him specifically, but I remember a lot of players like that just wowing me just with what they did because they were so much more technically proficient than Premier League players. And also because you only saw that in highlights packages. It looked like everything they did was perfect. Like, yeah, these, exactly. Like, none of these are doing a, a foul throwing. <laughs> all, the, all they're doing is scoring from 40 yards every single day. Like, how good is this league? And I think they just took on sort of an allure. Like, they were, they were almost mythical growing up. Like, um, Del Piero was the same and um, like early days of Totti. I think you're right about the tournaments. You'd see these uh, players you'd never heard of, but invariably Harry Redknapp would try to sign them. But to in in preparation for this episode, it was an absolute pleasure to go looking at uh, highlights of Nedved on YouTube. Oh, I mean, wow. what a player. What a player. I mean, every goal he scored seemed to be a volley or a half volley. It's a pure treat to, to watch him. But before we speak about him, I think... You, you can't talk about his time at Juve without talking about Zidane, Oli, and just how big a player he was and what he went on to do at Madrid and what a hole he was going to leave um, in Italy. Talk about, I mean, Joe just mentioned mythical. Um, Zidane was that. Zidane was the best player, arguably, you know, one of the top five players to ever play the game. But at the time, he was the best player. And for him, again, because Joe said it, like we did have Football Italia. I was conscious of, of Zidane. I knew who he was. But when he arrived at the World Cup in Paris, a bit like when we had it in London, you know, I mean, that was what it was like for France. And that team, that was the beginning of that team. And he scored two headers in the final. And for a lot of us, that was like, who is Zidane? Who is this guy? You know, he looks like a monk, but he moves, you know, he, he was just... He moves like a ballet dancer. He, well, his athleticism was unbelievable. And it was his control and his poise... You know, it's a bit like how Federer is now. These guys who are just savants of the game. For for Zidane, I think I think what you need to understand is just how long his career was, and it really kind of is broken up into. Uh, obviously, he initially played for Bordeaux, moved to Juve, relatively young. But what he did in that time um, was incredible, uh, and what he won very very quickly. It's at a relatively young age. He looked quite old, but he was young. You know, almost the entire time he was in his relative youth uh, before moving on. And I think for me. His most iconic moment is probably not even from the World Cup in 98. It's actually from in Scotland uh, when he played Bayern Leverkusen in the final in 2001. Um, and there's a ball that comes over and everybody knows this goal. But I think it's hard because Joe just alluded to the grainy footage that you get. You know, that really was on ITV. That was something where, you know, that was a showcase. It was on Terrestrial. And this guy would do it every time he played in the Champions League. That's who this guy was. That's why Madrid had to pay the money they did, which at the time was exorbitant. It was just... It's just money that you've never heard of. But I think it is worth understanding the challenge that lay before Juve in replacing a player like that. Um, somebody who the fans, you know, especially in Italy with their fan base and the curva um, such as Juve have, they're, they're unforgiving and they're unrelenting. And Juve managed to pick exactly the right person at exactly the right time. But I think if anybody had asked, you know, asked you at the time, is Pavel Nedved going to win a Ballon d'Or over Zidane and the likes of players like Thierry Henry just two years later after winning a Scudetto and so on. And he's the vice president of the, of the club now as well. In terms of his cultural importance to them, is is unbelievable. But I'm curious if Zidane was as important, you know, to your sort of football encyclopedia. You make a comment in the piece, the comparison with Nedved and Zidane, how they were aesthetically 
unusual, which I think was a great, a great point. Joe, you said Zidane was like a ballet dancer, and he was. There's kind of a running phrase, great feet for a big man. He did have great feet for a big man. He, he moved like a dancer. He could head the ball. He was graceful. He had this kind of smouldering expression. My claim to fame is that I met him. No way. I was in his presence. Wow. You're marking him. <laughs> yeah. As a teenager, I won a competition to go to the World Cup, and I was a FIFA fair play flag bearer at the quarterfinals in 98 France and Italy oh so lucky so I was in the tunnel where the teams came directly behind us so I was in his presence like he was a matter of feet away from me and you kind of got this idea that you were stood in Zidane's presence later I, I got to live in Madrid during the time the Galacticos project was kind of in full swing while Beckham was there. And we got to watch them in training and to just see Zidane like banging in free kicks from 30 yards. Zidane was very much, as you said, one of the great players and will go down as one of the great players of all time. I think Zidane is potentially, I wouldn't regard him as the best player I've ever seen, but he is the player that I would most like to be. I think Messi is 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 the greatest and then closely followed by Ronaldo. But when you watch Zidane play, it, it's almost like he would never have had to cultivate that talent. He was just born with it and he just steps on the pitch and goes, oh yeah, I'm really good at this. And, and well, to a slightly lesser extent, Cantona was the first person in the premiership that I saw like that. You just think, this guy is like, there's nothing about him that makes him look like an, a- an actual athlete, like a footballing athlete. Yet he is able to do things that other people just can't do and he makes it look l- like he's not even trying. So we've waxed lyrical about Zidane, but this is about his heir at Juventus, which was Pavel Nedved. And Ollie, as you rightly said, like he went on to become an absolute legend at Juve. But it's your story is about the physical anomaly. I think you're right in a piece. There was a, a billion to one anomaly of his physical makeup. So tell us about that. Yeah. So essentially, and this is something that people had heard, but we didn't know too much about. And I only later found out after investigating it, if you like. He has essentially three parts to his knee, on both knees. So where most of us um, have only um, only two at the patella, it wasn't found out until he actually moved to Italy. So when he, when he moved to Italy um, in the mid-90s, uh, at the same time as Zidane, funnily enough, um, it was found by doctors that you have this kind of physical anomaly. The main thing I think that at the time it gave him this kind of superhero, again, kind of mythical present because you hear that you'd heard this story. and But it was never, I don't think, ever proven that there was any sort of direct correlation to, you know, helping him play or making him this kind of Robocop type footballer with these, you know, Inspector Gadget type abilities. <laughs> again, when I started writing this, it was to go back and to actually study a lot of tape and to watch a lot of footage of, of Nedbed beyond kind of just maybe just his goals, but, you know, actual whole games, the way that he would move around. And it became apparent very, very quickly. The, the level of talk, almost, that he was able to put his body under, just in the way that he shifts, not dissimilar to a Messi. That was most fascinating for me, and you understood actually that he was sort of prodigiously both-footed as well, which is again like Zidane, and again like Cantona, um, and like Burkamp. I have all these guys in a similar boat because these are, again, they're savants, they're kind of, it was also mentally the way that they played the game. Um, and I think that it, his, his, this kind of physical conundrum, he used it to his advantage. I, I, I'm genuinely convinced there's nothing like this. There is nothing like um, somebody having an extra part to essentially a knee joint um, that gives you this kind of hyper uh, dexterity and such a crucial part of your leg that you need in order to play football. And, and for me, it was his lateral movement. The guy was able to move laterally across the pitch and, you know, incredibly fast. 
So you're not saying that this physical um, aberration in his knees was the sole reason he was the player he was. You've described his physical makeup, how he would move on the pitch, how he would turn on the pitch, the fact he could use both feet. If you do go back and watch his uh, highlights of him, there is a bit of a similarity with Messi, actually. This kind of close control or low centre gravity balance, the way he moved. But it had to have had a bearing. 100%. 100%. I think it's in his movement as much as it is in his ability to... Actually, durability for him was an issue towards the end of his career. He did miss quite a few games. As I say, his knees sort of let him down in the end. But it was almost the way that he could... That, that when first time we saw him in the Euros when he came over here, you know, you know, this is a player that would have survived in the Premier League because he took a lot of hits. Like, he took a lot of hits in midfield. Like, he was a player that was able to take that extra step, get behind the line and always manage to just keep the ball, the, the ball away from the opponent. And that's what makes it so intriguing. Because like you say, a lot of his goals were spectacular. Him standing outside the box, the, the ball coming out from a corner, say, half volley off the, uh, off the bounce. Like, that's, you know, that's so, so hard to do. And yet he seemed to have this strength in, in what you know, quite quite small legs that he had. I think players like uh, Nedved as well, players like him have massively influenced the type of footballers that I like watching now. So from a from a Spurs perspective, people like uh, Modric and Van der Vaart and uh, to a lesser extent Christian Eriksen, they all had similar attributes that like they were low center of gravity they had this ability to sort of glide over the pitch that like they always seem to know where the ball was going to be. Uh, they had like the eye for a pass, like the, one, the kind of pass that even the cameraman can't see. And they're, and they're always the players that I gravitate to. And I think Maradona is obviously the, the pinnacle of, of that, really, in, in football history. But players like Nedved in, must have influenced the generation that I'm watching now. 100%. And they're all Tottenham players, you just... Uh, well, yeah, just I, I specifically there. picked them out as, as, to, as Tottenham players. <laughs> Calm down, gentlemen, the Arsenal down, and the Spurs fan. But without giving everything in, that's in the piece away, Ollie, he could have lived up to Zidane's reputation if he could match it on the international stage. And while they didn't quite manage to do that with the Czech Republic, like what a team they were, what a story it was, like a newly formed nation going to Euro 96, Nedved, a pivotal part of that, and then captaining them at the Euros in 2004. Absolutely. And I think, when you're thinking of that Czech Republic team, they just got, they, they had, as I say, this is where my football journey kind of started, if you like, uh, with, with, you know, from Euro 96, they were in the final. They lost to Germany in this heartbreaking golden goal. Point being is that Czech Republic had had heartbreak on the international stage. Um, and, and, you know, and the core nucleus of that team um, names of which, you know, did become household names over here. I say household names. Karol Poborski, you know, obviously played for Man United. I think everyone remembers him. He scored this incredible lob. Uh, I think it was at Old Trafford um, for, for the Czech Republic over Portugal. So they were already playing this quite exciting football. And like Joe says, you know, a lot of these players, the next generation went on to emulate. Poborski was a really good player. Patrick Berger was another player. A Liverpool stalwart for years. Uh, Vladimir Smitsa. Jan Koller was there at the time. Jan Koller was there, you know, and he was at the, by the time we got to Euro 2004, eight years later, that's when you got Jan Koller, this terrifying kind of brute, but actually was, you know, he was the, the archetypal big man. He had, a, he had a great touch and, and so often the teams of that era, they all kind of had that. Germany had it with Miroslav closer to sort of a lesser extent, but that was a kind of uh, a style of football that the Czech Republic really warmed to. By the time they got to Euro 2004, if you add Thomas Wozicki to the ranks, you know, they had a, a, a nucleus of a, of a team who had been together for quite a long time by that point. Um, and really it had stung Nedved. You know, he speaks about 
uh, getting to the final of a European tournament so early in his career. Nedved had a huge amount of success in his career very early on in, in his domestic leagues that he played in. But on international stage, he said that he thought, you know, those as so often they do, that those opportunities would come around, you know, relatively frequently. But they didn't for him. It was really kind of two tournaments where he had his shot. So by the time he got to Euro 2004, he had won the Ballon d'Or in 2003. Um, you know, he'd added another Scudetto to his name, um, as well as domestic cups. And he um, was at the peak of his powers. He was at the peak of his powers. And so often European football, sorry, tournament football, world tournament football works. You know, World Cups are won um, often by teams who have, you know, a talisman. But actually, Czech Republic had a few of them. When really when you're talking about iconic Czech footballers, he's right up there to top the list. It's a fantastic article, Ollie. It's brilliantly written. It really brings to life the impact he had, especially in Italy. It's also spectacularly illustrated in the magazine by the Japanese artist Kazuki Yamada, founder of the Tokyo-based brand City Boys FC. So I urge you to check it out in the magazine. What I love about, it's not in your piece, but in the research, what I loved about Nedved is he actually went home to play for the team in his village in the Czech Republic who were operating in the seventh level of Czech football uh, because the club chairman said it was his dream to play alongside his son, which I think is a great story. And the fact that he's become an administrator at Juventus, he's clearly become a lifetime legend at that club. So before we finish, so the piece is about Nedved and how this physical makeup made him the player he was. And there are examples of other players like that. The obvious one being Messi and when he was taken to Barcelona as a child to have that operation. So what is it about a player who's not the perfect physical specimen who might well have been, especially in this day and age of, of high-tech medical examinations, might have been cast aside because they weren't this ideal of a football player what do you think it is about someone that's that bit different that goes on to be a standout player I think you know when you're looking at other examples of players not just footballers but you know any athlete that has physical abnormality if you like in the terms of Nedved it never hindered him if you're looking at other examples um, of players like this and I, I know a few and actually when I was writing this story I remember coming across them um, but there's famously Garincha who was I don't know if you, you remember he was a Brazilian sort of football legend part of those Pele sort of led teams, the World Cup winning teams of, of 58 and 62. And he, um, I think he won, he won player of the tournament and he was a golden boot. But this guy had, you know, he had a left leg that was quite, it was, it was kind of distorted almost. And it kind of... Bow like, point, Yeah, it was bow legged. And it's quite, it's almost uncomfortable to watch because his left leg kind of points inwards to such an angle. Um, and his right foot, I think, was, was like five or six centimetres shorter. And it was also, so he, he, it had this kind of bow-legged um, effect. But it was, um, he was unbelievable, by all accounts. That is somebody who you can, you know, you, it, it, right in front of you, you can see that this guy has to overcome and learn how to use this impairment, you know, for his game. There's a couple of others. I remember being an Arsenal fan. <laughs> I don't know if I've mentioned that. But being an Arsenal fan, Canu, I remember Canu, he, he was an icon of the time. Like, he was, he was that important to us. He had a hole in his heart. And I remember, I think it was like 96. Uh, I, he played for Nigeria in the Olympics. I think and they found it and found that he had this hole in his heart in a scan um, and had to have an operation. So that, I mean, you know, it can get as serious as that if we're actually using the true sort of medical term abnormality or physical abnormality. Kanu um, came back and he was unbelievable. But I remember with Kanu, it was always that he couldn't play too often. But those are just a few examples that I came across just writing this story. Do, do you know uh, Dean Shields? Have you ever heard of Dean Shields? He used to play for Hibs. 
Dean Shields was a uh, so I think he only retired last year, but he was um, blind in one eye from when he was uh, the like the age of eight. And I, I remember it was a big story in uh, it was 2006 that he had to have his right eye taken out and then he had to have a glass eye put in in place. And he played over 100 games for Hibs. He played 90 games for Rangers, 80 games for Doncaster, 14 appearances for the Northern Ireland national side. And he did that with one eye. That's seriously impressive. And you think any sport, you you need you need the ability to perceive depth. But you think, surely you need two eyes to be good at football. But he had... I have double the amount of eyes that he has. And I am... I wouldn't even say half the footballer. (laughs) I remember watching him a lot when I was at uni and we couldn't afford Sky, so we had Satanta Sports, which was cheaper. But the the problem with Satanta Sports was you could only watch Scottish football. (laughs) So you go, yeah, I'm watching the Premier League. Which one? That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Come Come round for the Prem. It's a intriguing conversation. You look at an Irish context, someone like Paul McGrath, whose kind of off-field uh, troubles are well advertised, but on the pitch, he, he would say he had no knees, he couldn't train, he had a virus that was eating his shoulder away, and yet, he again, he's one of the greatest Irish players of all time. So there's something in it about players who might, in the strictest sense, fail a medical, are actually the ones who go on to be icons of the game. So it's been a brilliant conversation, Ollie and Joe. Ollie, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Really enjoyable. And Joe, it's been great having you back again. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. And that's it for the latest episode of the Pogue McGoal podcast. Let us know your thoughts by messaging us on social media at Pogue McGoal. Listen out for future editions where we'll be joined by more guests who've contributed stories, artwork, photography and more to both the magazine and website. Don't forget, you can now order issue 6 of the Pogue Magol magazine right now from pogmagol.bigcartel.com. Join us next time on the Pogue Magol podcast. Yeah.